Guys, we have a really, really interesting chapter to study. I don't know the last time you really did your devotionals in Deuteronomy 14, but you're, you're going to be amazed. It has to do with eating the right kind of food. Now, for some of you, this will be really important. Uh, a couple of us are on our missionary gambler's diet again. If you don't lose two pounds by 7 o'clock every Monday morning, you pay $100 extra dollars to the World Missions Fund. Every time I get on that diet, Ron Sadlow, our World Missions pastor, is passing out cookies and M&Ms, <laughs> ice cream sundaes, raising money for missions. Uh, but this is not about that kind of control of your diet. It's really about some very peculiar laws that the Old Testament calls dietary laws. Kosher. What is the right thing for God's people to eat? And, of course, we look at it and think of it as being very, very outmoded. And when you think of it in terms of its uh, literal uh, application for today, of course, we may say, well, it doesn't, it doesn't apply. And, and we know that the Lord Jesus had to teach Peter this in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, because Peter was very devoted to the distinctiveness of Israel and wouldn't even enter a Gentile's home because it was unclean. And you remember, God had to give Peter a vision of uh, a big sheet coming down out of heaven with animals of all types, including animals that Jewish folks should never eat, like pork. And God says to him, e eat all this. And Peter says, no way. I'm committed to being a distinctive uh, Israelite. And, and God had to tell him three times. And then right at that moment, Cornelius' servant knocks on the door and asks Peter to come preach to some Gentiles. And Peter got the point that, yes, there is a distinctiveness of God's people, but now there's a new age breaking out all over the world. And it's not just one ethnic group who's the central focus of God's kingdom. It's all ethnic groups all over the world and all socioeconomic groups and so on. So we know that in, in the literal sense, the dietary laws are abrogated uh, in Christ. But we're going to see here there's a very important principle that still applies. And that's what we want to dig out of here, uh, out of this chapter 14. And I think even as we look at it, this may be a good lesson for us, how we take a chapter of the Bible that looks distinctively and peculiarly Israelitish, and we bring it into our own day and put it into practice. So let's look at it. We'll, we'll read, we're not going to read the whole chapter because we're going to look at the next part of it in our next lesson, uh, but we'll read the first 21 verses. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads. Well, that blows it for some of you. Uh, for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two 
and choose the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales you may eat, and whatever does not have fins and scales you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, and the hoopoe and the bat. And all winged insects are unclean for you. You shall not be eaten. Now, that's my favorite verse in the scriptures right there. Uh, All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are, there you go, that's my next favorite verse. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. God help us to understand this his word and to his name be glory forevermore. Now, if you look at the previous chapter where we just came from, you notice that we go from this incredible uh, instruction to uh, destroy an entire city if they've become rebellious to the Lord. In other words, we saw last week that we're to be so distinctive that we take on anything that's coming. And even if a whole group uh, goes in another direction, uh, we are to speak out. We are to stand up. We are to be God's people. So that's a really vivid, graphic chapter. And we move from that to how you fix lunch. It seems a little strange in transition. And yet the common distinctive is this, that we are to be God's distinctive people. And that is what Moses is emphasizing. You're not just to assimilate into whatever culture you go into. You are to, of course, love all the peoples of the earth, but you are to be a distinctive people. And it's everything about your life, even including how you eat. And there are some distinctive things even in the New Testament about how you eat. Maybe we'll have time to look at those. Uh, not not the, the, these dietary laws. But everything that we do, as Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So Moses is basically saying to the people, everything about you smells differently. You have a different DNA, a different orientation in life. And so therefore all your habits, your customs are centered around your covenant loyalty to Yahweh. Now that's what's behind everything. We may apply that differently today. But the concept is the same. Now, let's look then at how he starts out in verses 1 and 2. And we see this, don't we, almost everywhere we turn in the Bible. He defines us first. He tells us who we are and what God's done for us. And then he tells us what to do. He does the same thing here. You are a consecrated people. 
You are distinctive because you are consecrated. Now, what does the word consecrated mean? It means to set apart from, for something. This is the concept of holiness. The word holiness means to be a person set apart, consecrated. So, for example, uh, in our communion services, <clears throat> typically in most of our denominations, there'll be a, what we call a prayer of consecration or prayer for consecration. And we say, Lord, please now set apart these elements from their common and ordinary use, that would be bread and wine, from simply common meals. Set, them, set these elements apart from their common and ordinary use to this, the sacred use, as the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ. So there's a consecration. There's a setting apart from common to sacred. And that's what holiness does. It takes you out of being common into being sacred. We do the same thing if we consecrate a building for the worship of God. We, we consecrate it or we ask God to consecrate it, take it from its common use to a sacred use. The same thing uh, for those of you in denominations where you baptize your children. One of the elements of baptism is they are being consecrated from common children to being sacred children. What does that mean? That means they are to be saints who are worshiping the Lord. So even though we don't know anything about their regeneration, we don't even know about their election. We ask for their consecration from common to sacred so that now we train them to pray the Lord's Prayer, to sing the hymns, to give attention to the Word because they're set apart to worship and serve God. And in, in some of your traditions, the parents make that decision because of our faith in Christ. We take our children and hand them over and train them and consecrate them. And that's, that's part of the nature of, of baptism. So you can see many ways in which we have this sense of common and sacred. But the most important sense is the sense of your life. When you came to Christ, something important happened to you. You came out of the common and went into the sacred. Now, you still live in a common life. And as Leonard Ravenhill said, the most amazing thing that God has ever done is to take an unholy man and, put him, and make him holy and put him in an unholy world and keep him holy in it. So we're not to remove ourselves from the common, from the world, but we're in the common as sacred beings. And that's what it means to be a saint. A saint is a person who has been consecrated from common to holy, to sacred. So what Moses is saying to them to begin with is, you have been taken from common to sacred. You are God's peculiar people. And so let's look at how he describes it quickly here. In verse 1, he calls us sons. And there are a number of places in the scriptures, and you get a couple of them there right there in Deuteronomy, in chapter 131 and chapter 85 where we see that we are sons of God. And, of course, when you come to the New Testament, this language just explodes on the pages of the Bible. And Jesus teaches us to call God our Father, which was most unusual, and to enjoy this relationship of sharing DNA with God. When you're born again, you actually are partakers, says Peter, of the divine nature. And you, you are a true son. You're not just adopted. You're adopted, yes, but you're also given the Father's nature. 
It's an amazing thing. And we are told in John 1 that anyone who believes in Him has the right to become a child of God, and that means a full heir of His estate. So Moses is saying to these children of Israel before they cross the, the Jordan, right there on the east side of the river, he's saying to them, look, guys, you're his children. Don't ever forget that. Notice, secondly, he calls them saints. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Now, this is the driving point of this chapter and of much of this section, including the previous section we studied. You are a people holy to the Lord. And you notice I gave some references there to the opening sentences of Paul's epistles. He'll often say to the saints who are in Corinth, to the saints who are in Philippi. When Paul thinks of of the brothers and sisters in the church, he thinks of them as consecrated people, holy to the Lord for his use. We're a vessel in the house of God. And we we must see ourselves this way. that We're going out into the world not just like everybody else, but we've been set apart for peculiar service. First of all, to the Lord and then for others. And then notice in verse 2, he says, The Lord has chosen you out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He's saying, and, and of course he's dealt with this already in Leviticus, I mean in Deuteronomy 7, 8, and 9. He says, He didn't choose you because you're the largest or the greatest of the nations. No, He chose you because you're the most bullheaded of the nations. You were the smallest. You were the weakest. You were the most difficult. And so he chose you because he brought you from the lowest point. He takes you to the highest point. And therefore, the gradient there is absolutely phenomenal. And his glory is exalted because he took the least and made them the greatest. So we don't brag about our election. My goodness. Uh, that, that would be an oxymoron to brag about election because election is a saving act of God, saving people who are miserably lost and undeserving. But he's saying, I have elected you, I've chosen you. Now, Paul teaches us very explicitly that we're not just chosen in time out of all the nations. Paul teaches us that we were chosen in the mind of God before all time and space. I mean, from all eternity. In God's mind, he chose us in eternity. Now, that's some kind of choosing. And we see that, of course, his choice of Israel is his choice. That's where his election be, uh, begins to be worked out in space and time. He's elected all of his people from all eternity. They're already all elect. But it began in his mind and in his plan with a nation that would be wandering through the wilderness. And so Moses starts by teaching them what it means to be elect. It means, number one, that you should be humble. Because what you have in terms of your relationship with God is a gift. You didn't do anything to earn it. You weren't. It wasn't because you were smarter or naturally more moral. But it was because you were plucked like a brand out of the fire. Brands don't pluck themselves out of the fire. They just stay in the fire. You have to be plucked out, and that's what he did for you. And so the first implication of our election is this tremendous humility brokenness before the Lord. Why why would you be so kind to me? And secondly, a result of our election is that we, we praise Him and give Him honor and glory for His salvation. We don't share credit with God for His saving works, His redemptive plan. We give Him all the glory because He was the one who designed it and executed it. 
from eternity and in space and time long before we ever hit the planet. So we worship Him. We exalt Him. We lift Him up as the only God and the only God who saves and the one who saves strictly by His own power and might. Now, of course, when He comes into our lives and His election is being worked out in space and time, He enables us to repent and believe and you must repent and believe. And you can look at salvation from two different perspectives. From his perspective, from all eternity, which is what we're doing now. Or you can look at it from our perspective in space and time. And they're both true. They're both true. God has chosen from all eternity. And you must be born again. You must believe and be saved. You must repent from your sins or you will not be saved. These are both true. But here Moses is reminding them of the brand that is upon them. It's the brand of God and God's gracious initiative and therefore God is to be worshipped. So if you want to know, oh, so I'm, I'm elected to worship Him. What shall I worship Him for? Well, duh, because He brought you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Duh, He brought you out of your destiny to hell and the fire and brought you into glorious, radiant light. Brought you out of death into life. Now you got something to worship Him for. And so... Your distinctiveness is part of the reason that you worship Him because you've come to know Him through what He's done for you distinctively. So Moses is saying, don't forget that you're elect, you're chosen by God. So you're humbled. You exalt Him as the 100% saving God. And thirdly, I, I think we could say that one of the implications of our chosenness is that we know who we are. And we're assured of being His for all eternity. Now, if I share 10% of the saving work, or if I consider my repentance and faith 1% or 0.01%, then I am immediately not assured. Because I know what I'm going to do with my percentage. I'm going to screw it up. And it'll be before before the sun sets. But if all of the work is initiated by God. And if my work, namely repentance and faith, is a gift from God that He enables me to work out in my life so that even my repentance and faith, as Paul says, is a gift from God. That is, it all comes from God, even my part, which I must do. If I know that, then it can't get screwed up because God never breaks His promises. And that's part of what Deuteronomy teaches us, that we... We are in the covenant not because we're faithful, but because He's faithful. And this is a gracious covenant, and we can see it over and over again by the faithlessness of Israel and the faithfulness of God. So, if my salvation is all tied up in the faithfulness of God, now I know who I am, and now I know where I'm going. And it is from this perspective, as an assured, confident believer, that we do our best work. When we're nervous, neurotic, guilt-driven in our relationship with God, we don't do our best work. When we're assured, like any son whose father tells him, Son, I don't care what you do. You'll never cease to be my son. I may have to discipline you. Even as an adult, you you may have to pull some funds or something like that, but I'll never cease to love you, never cease to be committed to you, and never cease to want the best for you. And I'll give my life for you. You have, a, you have your old man tell you that? 
I'm telling you what, that just fills you with confidence. That you're bolstered by this senior man whose wife gave birth to you. And he's completely committed to you. Now that's what God is doing. I gave birth to you. You're mine. And I'm completely committed to you. And that's what it means to be chosen. He's completely committed to you. All the way through to the end. So why are you fooling around? Acting like you're somebody else's kid. And you got the best father in the universe. That's the idea here. So it's, it humbles us. It makes us worshipers of God. And it instills incredible confidence in us. So that when the onslaught of the opposition comes at us from the world, the flesh, and the devil, we're prepared because we know who we are. We're sons who have been chosen by God, set apart as saints for worship. And then notice this next phrase uh, tucked in there in verse 2, to be a people for his treasure possession. That is, we're beloved. And you could look at the series of phrases in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Some of us studied a few years ago. You'll find this idea of treasure possessions repeated over and again, and we've seen it already in Deuteronomy. And we saw that any king who owns the kingdom, he still has his crown jewels, his special jewels that are right there in his boudoir. And that's his treasured possession. He keeps to himself. And that's what we're being called. That yes, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns a billion galaxies with a billion stars in each. And so, yes, we're just a speck of dust in the universe. We're his treasured possession. And we're never to forget it. And notice how before we get these instructions about how to live a distinctive life, we're told why we live a distinctive life. Because God has distinctively loved us. And it should come out in the way that we live. It should be obvious to other people that we know there's something distinctive about ourselves. And they certainly will discern the same about us. Now, if we look at verses 3 all the, uh, all the way through 21... Let's lump this in and just say, well, simply, then we must live a consecrated life. If we are a consecrated people, it just makes sense then that our life is going to reflect that. If we have a profound calling from God, then our lifestyle will be equal to the calling. As Paul says, live a life worthy of the gospel. That lives like a scales. You know, if the gospel is heavy, then live a heavy lifestyle. Don't let it overbalance. So live a life that is worthy or equal to the kind of calling you have. Now, in this text, we we basically get two major uh, forms of the consecrated life. And we're going to look at those, and then we're going to try to apply this to our own day. But let's quickly go through these particular forms of consecration. Now, if we back up for a moment to verse 1, we get the first one. And that is we are to avoid all forms of false Worship. Now, why do I say that? Well, because he says here, you shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads. Now, if you already got baldness on your foreheads, that's fine. But uh, he says, baldness on your foreheads for the dead. This was a famous or infamous habit among many pagan cults when they were grieving they would shave themselves and cut themselves uh, in memory of the dead. And there were also, you could imagine, all kinds of superstitions that went with that. And what happens is sometimes practices get passed around and sometimes Christians pick them up and don't even think about what they mean. I mean, some of you probably have a rabbit's foot hanging off the front of your mirror. 
What? What's with a rabbit's foot? Well, I don't know. I guess it's good luck. Good luck? Crap. There's no good luck in a rabbit's foot. Who needs luck when you got Jesus? You know? And we just do these thoughtless things. I'm going to look at the newspaper and see what my astrology says. <laughs> see what... See what See what you know, I'm, I'm Aquarian. So what, what's in it for Aquarians today? You're going to go look at some idiotic astrologer to find out what the meaning of life for today and find out if, boy, good things are in store for you or bad things. Hey, if you're in Jesus, it's good things, man. Even when it's bad, it's good because the Lord's with us and he's training us and discipling us and he's blessing us even in our struggles. We know this, so it trumps everything. But we carry all this stuff with us that is just unexamined. It's living an unexamined life. And so Moses says, now, hang on, everybody. The first thing you want to get right is your worship practices. Practices and habits and traditions reflect a theology and a worldview. They do. And it might be good for you to study those things and see where this stuff came from before you just willy-nilly want to become like everybody else. You might think about it. Use your noggin. Why am I doing what I do? And then what you do needs to be theologically driven. You say, well, I didn't get to go to seminary. It doesn't take seminary to do this. A five-year-old begins to do it. So whatever theology you've got, you press it out into all of life and you're constantly thinking in your business dealings, I mean, just had something yesterday or this past week come up uh, where we're considering something in the church and there's a universal habit of how you do it. But several of us are saying, hang on just a minute. I know this is universal, but it's not good. And it doesn't reflect the way God's people ought to act. So let's suggest a total change on the way everybody else does it. And let's do it this way. Why not? That's the adventure. That's, that's where you're a Christian entrepreneur. You, you're, you're supposed to be salt and light. You're supposed to be a change agent. You're supposed to be challenging everything that everybody else does. And when the hockey league plays hockey at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, you say, uh, hang on just a minute. I think there's a conflict here. When baseball is taking your kids away from worship on Sunday night, you go, hang on just a second. This, this, this picture is not right. I've got my priorities. Everybody is doing it. Yeah, everybody's wrong. And so what Moses is saying is, hey, guys, don't do funerals the way they do them. And we can say the same to ourselves. Here's why we believe in the resurrection. We're going to be different about our funerals. Yes, we're going to weep. But Paul says to us in 1 Thessalonians, you don't weep like those who have no hope. Your weeping is different. And believe me, as a non-Christian, I can tell you, I notice those people weep differently. And that's just part of what draws you to Christ. You notice there's something different about their funerals. There's something different about their weddings. There's something different about the way they celebrate and the way they mourn, everything. And Moses says, their practices reflect superstitions that you may know nothing about. You may know a whole lot about it, but you may know nothing about it. But don't go slicing up your body and cutting off your hair without knowing what you're doing. So the first thing is avoid all forms of false worship. And I would say this. I've had people ask me about yoga, you know, which generally comes from the East and is inspired by other religious thought forms. 
Here's what I'd say to you. Just do your homework. When you do your yoga exercises, what are you doing with your mind? And if you're doing the same thing with your mind that Easterns do with their mind, then your yoga is all screwed up. And here's what they do with their mind. Empty your mind. Find peace through emptying your mind. It's called transcendental meditation. What do Christians do? We fill our minds. That's how we meditate and how we have peace. We fill our minds. With what? With the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that gospel just trickles down like ointment on the beard, on the collars of the robe. How beautiful and pleasant it is to experience this kind of peace when you fill your mind with Christ. So if yoga exercises help you fill your mind with Christ, fine. But if you're encouraging everybody to go think Eastern, that's not helpful at all. You have to be discerning and discriminating in everything that you do. So he says, avoid all forms of false worship. Now, secondly, in the major part of this text then, from 3 to 21, the main thing he's talking about is avoid what what I'm going to call here all forms of unclean living. All forms of unclean living. And their dietary laws were to regulate their ritual cleanness before God. Now, scholars do not perfectly understand all this stuff, uh, but we can certainly understand some things. Uh, I've listed the text there in Leviticus you notice underneath the B there, I've listed Leviticus 11. If you want to see the chapter that has the word unclean in it very often, it'd be that one. Or if you want it, the book that has the word unclean, by and large, way ahead of all the other books in the Bible, it'd be Leviticus. Unclean, 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 unclean. And the whole point of Leviticus is to teach us how as naturally unclean people, we can come into the presence not only of a clean God, but a holy God. You see, there are two categories that you have to be aware of in Old Testament thinking and New Testament for that matter, but especially in the Old Testament. We've already discussed common and sacred. But within the realm of common, you have two more categories, clean and unclean. You can be clean and common, not set apart. Uh, But you can't be set apart and be unclean. Impossible. Where you get major fireworks in the tabernacle or the temple is when you match the holy with the unclean. I mean, all hell breaks loose when those two come together. I'll give you an example. Remember Hezekiah uh, thought that because he was such a successful and powerful king, he could go in and do the priest's job in the tabernacle, in the temple rather. And they warned him, they pled with him not to go, but he said, oh, I can do this. Well, he wasn't consecrated to be a priest. And you remember he ends up with leprosy, which, of course, is one of the key signs of being unclean. Isn't it interesting? So God very much cares about these categories. He consecrates a whole priesthood to do this. But if you are unclean and you come into his presence, you notice unclean has to go not just outside the temple, but outside the entire wall of Jerusalem. Get the unclean, get the lepers out of here. Get those with strange diseases out of here. You're quarantined because they can't let you get close to a holy God. So you've got both these categories going on. Now, here is what Moses is saying. There are ways in which you become clean. And here's here's what he's doing. We're going to go through this quickly and then apply it. He says, first of all, let's look at what you can eat. 
And in Leviticus chapter 20, this is the point I wanted to make. Moses says there, you shall be holy to me for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So what he's saying is the food laws are because you are holy and you cannot be ritually unclean and come into the holy. It's all about access to God and intimacy with him. So you'll notice that first of all it involves animals. And he says every animal that parts the hoof and chews the cud, you can eat it. Those that don't, like, like pigs, you don't eat them or touch them. And, of course, we're very familiar with the pigs in the New Testament because Jesus makes a real point of it, doesn't he? And so he then goes to sea creatures. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. I like that. Those things, slimy things without fins and scales, I'm not quite sure I want to eat them. People have wondered, what is the significance here of hooves and cuds and fins and scales? Uh, the best explanation I've seen is that the thing that all of these clean animals and fish have in common is that they're what we call normal within their own species. It's the abnormal that seems to be being ruled out. And I don't know why that is. But for reasons that God alone knows, that's what he gave them. And then not only the sea creatures, but the birds. You can eat clean birds. And you'll notice, perhaps, as we read through 11, 18, through 18, the birds that are being uh, disallowed are those that are carnivorous, like vultures. They were not supposed to eat meat with the blood still in it. And these birds had done that. And so, therefore, they be- the birds themselves become unclean. That's one theory that makes a lot of sense to me. But what I want you to notice is the order. Animals, sea creatures, and birds. These are divided according to their primary habitat, which is the same way as in the days of creation. So basically, God's going back to creation. And he's saying, we're going to redo creation. In other words, his task is to cleanse the entire universe. And he's, in some ways, he's saying, let's start off with being clean in this world and let's be the agents of cleansing the entire thing. And then, of course, he mentions insects. Uh, in Leviticus, you'll see that those insects that can actually fly, uh, like grasshoppers and lo- locusts, they're edible. don't know if you've ever done that, but if you're concerned about what the Old Testament says about it, go right ahead. And then in verse 21, you get dead animals. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. And that, once again, would be because the blood is still in the animal. It's not been drained of its blood. And in Leviticus, we're told over and over again, the life is in the blood. Therefore, we don't eat the life-giving blood of an animal uh, in the Old Testament. And then notice, lastly, that these what we call perverse practices you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, are prohibited. Perverse practices are prohibited. Now, why is this perverse? Well, I've listed there two verses in Exodus where this same commandment is given. And in both of those cases, the injunction about boiling a goat in its mother's milk follows the laws concerning sacrifices and first fruits, which causes most scholars to say that this was a ritualistic practice among the pagans. It had something to do perhaps with their fertility worship, that they would take a goat and milk it and then put the kid uh, in the boiled milk. 
And there's something also perverse about it, uh, even just as you think about any animal being boiled in its own mother's milk. It just seems to be contrary to the maternal nature that God has put into the animal kingdom itself. It, it's probably, I, I, I could, this is a, a gross and exaggerated uh, parallel, but I think it is a parallel. It's kind of like the tragedy of, of abortion that's been going on for you know, 40 years almost in our country. It, the, the, the tragic and wicked irony is that the very ones who are to express this profound parental care, namely the mother, is turning around on a 180-degree turn and destroying instead of nurturing. It's just perverse. It's, it's, it's inside out, upside down. And this seems to be what's, what's part of what's going on here. Now, if you look at the footnote in your ESV on page 353, you'll see that uh, the, the editors here take a shot at it, and they refer to, uh, they say it may be a polemic. This is at the bottom of that page on the left-hand column. This may be a polemic against Canaanite magical practices. It is also an affront to God's creative design. Kids should be given life by drinking the mother's milk, not being cooked in it. So that's the best that scholars can do on that. Uh, it's one of those verses that we, we love to uh, quote saying, hey, go get a, you know, preach a sermon on that one. Uh, but you can see what Moses is saying. We're going to go into this land that's just full of these alien practices. And I want you to keep your minds, your hearts, and your habits to be distinctive to the Lord because that's who you are. And gentlemen, same thing about us today. We're in this Bible study. In about 10 minutes, you're going right out that door. And here's the deal. You must be sons who are saints, who are beloved, who are treasured possessions of the Lord, and you must reflect it in everything that you do. Now let's look at the implications in these last, I guess we have 15 minutes. Uh, of Deuteronomy 14, 1 through 21. First of all, we've said already all foods are now clean. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 that we should give thanks for every gift of God, all the, the food and drink that he gives us. Uh, take your glass of wine and give thanks to God for it. Just don't drink a second one. You know, you're not to be intoxicated, but with all the gifts of God, just thank him and eat them all, says Paul. Now he does say, however... Uh, in 1 Corinthians, did I list that one here? No. But in 1 Corinthians, you, you get the arguments in 8 and 9 about whether we should eat meat offered to idols. And you remember Paul's argument there. He says, if there's anyone there whose conscience tells them they should not eat meat that was previously offered to idols, in other words, you'd go to the butcher, and the butcher was always connected to a temple, and you'd offer these animal sacrifices in a pagan temple and then after the sacrifice was offered they'd give the meat to the butcher to sell so when you go to the butcher you're buying meat that was offered to idols and some had a conscience that said I'm not going to eat that meat it was offered up on an altar to a false god and others said it's all from God and it doesn't I'm not worshiping those false gods I'm just eating the meat and the meat came from God he made it and he made it for me to eat Paul says we've got a difference of opinion in the church he says, those of you with a strong conscience, and the strong conscience was the free conscience, that didn't believe that they were idol worshiping by eating the meat. The weak conscience was the one that uh, just felt like squeamish, like I just can't eat that stuff. And he says, those of you who have the strong conscience, don't do anything 
that tempts the weak to violate their own conscience. Maybe their conscience is weak and maybe they're drawing inconsistent inferences from the situation, but they believe they shouldn't do it and you shouldn't train anybody to break their conscience. So be careful. And then he says to those with a weak conscience, don't condemn these people who have a strong conscience. And I guess the closest thing that we have in our day, is, especially in conservative circles, would be the alcohol question. There are some who are teetotalers. And sometimes they're teetotalers because they don't think they should drink at all as a matter of morality. Well, don't tempt them to break their own conscience. But listen, you guys who are teetotalers, let the rest of us free. (laughs) Leave us alone as long as we're not intoxicated. And that's what Paul is saying. So you do have issues of food and drink in the New Testament. But the overarching liberating idea is all the foods that were made for us, that are healthy for us, are available to us. And by symbol then, all of the peoples of the world are available to us as well. Then notice, secondly, we must live distinctly clean lives. And in Leviticus 11, verses 44 and 45, Moses says, uh, God says through Moses to the people, be holy. Why? Because I am holy. You must be distinctive to me because I'm distinctive among all the, the names of the gods. Those gods don't exist. I distinctively have being. I am. And so therefore you are distinctively my people. So your holiness, your desire for holiness is because of his holiness. Now, holiness also means purity. We express our distinctiveness and our set-apartedness by being pure. And God is pure. So we just simply want to be like our father. We're just trying to grow up and be like daddy. And he is perfectly pure. So, uh, and Peter quotes the, the same concept. Now, can I just suggest several areas, maybe three areas where I think we're especially challenged in our ethics in terms of our distinctive cleanness. First of all, in our speech. Paul says don't let anything, uh, anything unwholesome come out of your mouths, but only what builds others up. I mean, think about that. Every time you open your mouth, you're building somebody up. Even when you're bantering, you're building somebody up. That's your life strategy. Do you measure your words carefully? Sometimes I think maybe we don't. Secondly, it has to do with our business dealings, our honesty, and our integrity. And sometimes the secrets we tell are the ones that are going to be of advantage to ourselves. The secrets we don't tell are the ones that would be to our disadvantage if anyone knew them. The things we tell our customers are the things that will be to our economic advantage, not to theirs. And when you're a distinctively Yahweh man, when you belong to Jesus Christ and you're his disciple, gentlemen, you put the interests of the other person actually ahead of your own. And thankfully, we live in an economy where you can actually make a living doing that. You can actually do this. I'm grateful for this. There are some economies that are very, very complicated, very difficult for Christian people to function. And that's the reason I'm so grateful to our fathers and mothers who went before us. They built a society that was intentionally accessible to Christians. 
where Christian morality will function within the government and the economic uh, modality and the educational institutions that we have. So function. You've been given a gift by God's providence over these past 300 years. Let's use it. So you can fully exercise uh, a Christian conscience where you are seeking to advance the welfare of your customers and the people or your clients or your patients, whatever it is that you have. Uh, and you can also make a living. And what Moses is saying, why would you want to make any other kind of living? What, what fun is it to beat people up and to take from them in order to build your estate? Why would you not want the building of your estate to be uh, uh, collaborative with the building of their welfare and their peace and the prosperity? And when the people are in uh, dispersion in Babylon, Jeremiah writes them a letter and he says, pray for the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've taken you. Because he says, if they are prosperous, so you will be too. In other words, God's going to take care of you. You pray for and seek the peace and prosperity of the people whose lives you're touching. That's the distinctive mentality of the Christian. It's a mentality of service. And it's contrary to what you're normally taught in business school and, and other places. So, gentlemen, our speech and our business dealings and certainly our honesty in every way. And then thirdly, our sexual ethics. And uh, it's amazing how when God gives us a covenant to display His covenant with us, that we, we take that far less seriously than we ought. This marriage covenant is sacred. It's something that's holy to us because it distinctively gives us an opportunity to display how God's men live out the distinctive Christian life. And there, there are some of you who are in difficult marriages. And your behavior is to be commended. You have submitted yourself to a difficult road of serving your wife with your own needs not being met. And I know a number of you who are doing this. You're to be commended for this. This is distinctively Christian. And believe me, other people notice this. And the reason is that's not normal behavior. This is sacred behavior. You're coming out of the common and unclean behavior of the world that we live in and you're going into the sacred and the clean. And you're hearing these words, be holy because I'm holy. When was the last time you really did something great for me, says God? But have I, have I wavered in my commitment to you? When was the last time you met my needs? I meet yours all the time. The man who knows who he is is the man who's equipped to be a lover and a covenant partner with another person. And this is crucial in the way that we live it out. So therefore, we don't go looking at pornography. Why? Because we're taking on the ritual sexual practices of another God. It's like slicing yourself and cutting a bald spot on your head because you're mourning. It's just, it's the practices of other people who worship other gods and have other values. It's not God's people. God's people train their minds to stay focused on God and on those covenant relationships that he's given us and to stay focused on your wife and serving her. And if you don't have all your sexual needs met, hey, uh, everybody in here that has all your sexual needs met every day, raise your hand. That's what I thought. Uh, it's just a matter of degree. 
And the man who never has his sexual needs met, uh, let me just say something. You're going to a place that is, believe me, a whole lot better than a whole series of orgasms. Uh, it's it's gr much greater than that. And the reason that you are faithful is you believe it. And you, you, you believe God's word and you don't doubt it, that your pleasure is going to be infinitely exquisite. And you can wait because you're a big boy. And you've been brought into the knowledge of sonship. And that's what you're waiting for. So believe me, guys, you're not losing. You don't just go around once. You go around for eternity. And this is a very short piece of it. And when you're deprived, you take your deprivation as a discipline from the Lord in order to worship Him all the more. And you don't do it with bitterness or grumbling or quarreling. You do it with joy in your heart. And I find these to be the real, some of the real challenges. Our words, our business dealings, our sexual lives and practices. But thirdly, notice where this all comes from. It comes from God. And let's just look at that Mark text for just a minute. You don't have to turn there, but you remember a leper came to him and said, Jesus, I would be clean. He uses the word clean. He doesn't use healed. He uses clean. Because his concern was not, first of all, healing. It was being cleansed. Why was he not clean? Because lepers in Jewish ritual practice were excluded from the temple. Jesus, I want to be clean. Jesus, do you want to be, you want to be clean? I want to be clean. Be clean. And Jesus cleansed him. He was delivered of his leprosy, and he was then qualified for temple worship. And that's exactly what Jesus does to us. You want to be clean? Just with a touch of Jesus, with the healing power of his forgiveness and his cleansing, we're cleansed and made appropriate for the temple. So it comes from God. Then notice, uh, fourthly, that cleansing begins in our hearts. The, the, the reason we say, have you invited Jesus into your heart? Well, you won't find that phrase in the Bible. But the reason we say it is, that's where Jesus begins his work. At the very headquarters of your being. The place where you have your deepest convictions, your most profound affections, the seat of your disposition. That's where Jesus begins his work. In Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees were criticizing Jesus for not ritually washing his hands before he eats and using all the cleansing ritual practices. And Jesus said to them, look, cleanliness is not so much what goes in your mouth, like food. It's what comes out of your mouth. And he says, this cleanliness begins with a heart. It's out of the heart that all wickedness comes. It's out of the heart that all kindness comes, that all holiness comes. Where's your heart? And that's the reason that Jesus begins by cleansing and consecrating a heart. Give him your heart, your deepest convictions, your profoundest affections, the very seat of your disposition. Say, Lord, take my heart. That's where it has to begin. And then fifthly notice that our cleansing includes every aspect of life. We're even going to talk about what you fix for lunch. I mean, it involves everything. And you'll notice in 2 Corinthians 
uh, at the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7 that the idea of, of cleanness really comes out. He says, come out from among them and be separate. And this is where Paul is making his argument about being equally yoked. And that would involve worship. They were yoked in common faith and worship. But it also had to do with marriage, being equally yoked in marriage. Don't give your heart to another heart that's not consecrated. A consecrated heart gives his consecrated heart to another consecrated heart. If you don't, you defile your own heart. And you defile what Malachi calls the sanctuary of God. And what is his sanctuary? Your heart. And his sanctuary is the church. So you defile your heart, you defile the church. When you unite your sacred heart, heart to heart, with a heart that's not sacred. So it's every aspect of life. Does this mean you can't be a business partner with someone who's not a Christian? No, certainly not. Business demands working collaboratively together fairly closely, doesn't it? And it involves certain moral understandings. Non-Christians can come to us in a way that we can partner with them. But if, if you say, am I going to be able to be closest, heartfelt friends? I don't think so. Someone you pray with and share your deepest secrets and ask for the advice on the things of worship and on theology. I don't think so. Those are brothers with whom you yoke in intimate covenant fellowship like David and Jonathan. Lastly, our cleansing is accomplished by God's word and spirit. Jesus says in his upper room discourse in John 15 that the word will cleanse you. It's amazing. If you want to be set apart for his purposes day by day, you need to be cleansed every day practically. And you're cleansed positionally, eternally. It's already been dealt with. You are definitively sanctified. But there's a daily experience of being cleansed and set apart in your own mind consciously for his work. How does that happen? By the power of his word with the spirit in your life. And that's the reason that we study the word is so that we will be practically cleansed and set apart for his service. So gentlemen... The dietary laws, Deuteronomy 14, teaches us something very important. You have been set apart distinctively to be a distinctive people. Go and enjoy it today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for setting us apart and making us your own. And even with the discomforts that we uh, endure in this life by being so different from the world around us, we are thankful that you've made us different. And we long for the day when what now is sacred will become common. Everything will be sacred. We long to see the beauty and the truth and the goodness of that great day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.